Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today, we are very privileged to be joined by Dr. Kate Bevan-Marks, an experienced clinical hypnotist and hypnotherapy trainer. Her real passion, however, is for raising hypnotherapy education standards, which is a theme that formed a large part of her doctorate. In fact, as research for it, she completed training with 200-plus international hypnosis and hypnotherapy training providers. So today promises to be a hugely interesting conversation, but no pressure, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Well, absolutely great to have you. And jumping straight in, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got started? Okay. Well, I've long been interested in the use of language to influence behavior and change and this really sort of came about when I was working in health and safety I know those dreaded words <laughs> and doing some risk management and I've worked in heavy industry in high risk industries in universities and how you communicate with people is vital it can save somebody's life it can stop them falling into a machine and being chopped up into little bits the size of a 50 pence piece so getting that right is really important and I developed some models and some training around communication and that led me into really exploring hypnotherapy and hypnosis more and around that time I went off and had some hypnotherapy myself and it worked so well that I got hooked. I was so interested and I'm pretty analytical and I wanted to know how it works, what it does, how I could do it. And I think from that moment, from that very first session, I became immersed in the world of hypnotherapy. So much so that ooh, about six years ago now, I decided to make the split away from doing my regular day job and hypnotherapy evenings, weekends and every other moment of my life to just doing hypnosis and hypnotherapy things. And that was an amazing start. It opened up a whole world of opportunities. I now get to teach both in the UK and internationally. I'm a bit of a conference junkie. I love talking at conferences and giving presentations. So I've been able to do a lot more of that. 
and develop some other work as well so as well as having a practice in London I do some work with the London Teaching Hospital doing hypnosis on the wards Mm -hmm. I'm chair of a professional association for hypnotherapy and I recently well last year got elected to the profession specific board for hypnotherapy with a voluntary regulator and this is an amazing opportunity firstly it was wonderful that my peers voted me into that so that was incredible but it means then that one of my passions, as you mentioned, is about quality of hypnotherapy training. And at the moment, we're just, the voluntary regulator is just going into a consultation phase for a revision of the core curriculum. So it's fascinating to be really, really involved in a place where it really matters. So that's fantastic for me. I'd love to know, I mean, you mentioned there was a point at which you decided to, to go full time. And I know there are a lot of hypnotherapists out there who are part time and they may have a question in their mind of, you know, how, how do I know when it's time to, to take the plunge? And do I wait until, you know, I'm, I'm literally, you know, bulging at the seams with clients before I make that leap? Or do you just have to kind of go for it? And, you know, how did you know it was the right time? I was working full-time in hypnotherapy and full-time in my day job and that was there was just sleep apart from that Um, (laughs) so part of it was was being rational and I actually had a chat with um, a colleague and we sat down and we, we took a very sort of analytical approach to it and worked out where I wanted to be and when I realized as a result of that chat that I really wanted to do hypno in whatever realm, and that the day job was just the day job. It was a passion, but not as big. Yeah. And it's really where you want to be somewhere else that it's time to be somewhere else. You mentioned, obviously, that there's uh, they're going into a consultation phase in terms of amending the, the curriculum. What do you think is the, the, the problem or difficulties with the current curriculum? I don't think there are particular problems. It's just that... Various academic institutions have changed their rules and requirements, which has had an impact on core curriculums for a lot of different therapies. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest problems I find is that so many trainers and training organisations don't know of the core curriculum. They don't even know it exists. And that means that when they design their training, even with the best of intentions, it may have gaps that if they filled those gaps would actually enhance their training. So so what are the, the dangers uh, or other dangers, I don't want to put ideas in there, um, of people not you know, going out, not following a core curriculum and then training a bunch of people and saying, hey, guess what? You're now hypnotherapists. <laughs> you're, you're right. There may not be dangers. It may be that they have a wonderful, comprehensive training programme. However, the core curriculum came about with a vast consultation with the hypnotherapy profession. So in a way, it's a distillation of good practice. Hmm. One of the risks is particularly, and I've mentioned this before with other people, about things like guru shopping, where you, you go and you just study a model. And one of the risks there, if you have quite narrow training, is that you don't cover the basics, things like how to craft a really good pre-talk, 
what the legislation is around doing hypnotherapy in the UK. Because whilst there isn't a particular act for hypnotherapy, a lot of other legislation comes into it. Things like professional ethics, the the non-sexy stuff tends Mm. not to be covered on a lot of the shorter courses. So people go out naive of what's really required to operate a professional therapy business. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think certainly how to operate a business uh, as well is, a, is an aspect that I've often seen lacking on a lot of training uh, courses you know, where they focus a lot on, uh, as we would call the sexy stuff of, oh, let's just mm. dive in with the techniques and how do we help people change? But then actually, you know, they find themselves sitting in an office armed with, you know, some sexy techniques, but no clients. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I find it's really important because the majority of hypnotherapists work as a sole trader or as a limited company for themselves, they tend not to work within practices being employed. So in a way, they're quite isolated. And for me, the core curriculum and good training gives them a broader understanding of where they sit within the therapy profession Mm. and within the wider change profession. And also what they need to do to keep themselves safe and working professionally, rather than just really having a great range of techniques, perhaps, but no way of actually getting people through the door or knowing how to keep hold of records and all of the other sort of nuts and bolts that really come into setting up and running an effective therapy practice. I mean, I I am convinced that there are a number of hypnotherapists out there, and I'm, I'm, I'm literally just saying the first thing that comes into my head here which is i think and i suspect that that a lot of people suffer from what we call imposter syndrome and i just wonder whether there is a part of that because they're not covering some of the basics or the groundwork that goes with it which feeds that that little feeling of oh well maybe maybe i just haven't done the basics i think some of this comes from the fact that anybody can set up as a trainer my my neighbour, who's who's wonderful, she could read a book tomorrow, in fact, not even read a book, and then advertise a course on hypnotherapy training to practitioner level and just make it up as she goes along. She wouldn't. She's amazing. But that could happen. And sometimes you'll get people that create their own models and they find it works for them. And then they think, well, OK, I'll go off and teach it. Yeah. But they may not understand how to teach they may not understand how to create good teaching materials. They might not understand how people learn, which is completely different to how you teach. The two are very separate entities, linked but separate. So there's all sorts of different factors, and often people will teach what they know. And if they don't have a broad knowledge themselves, then they're not able to communicate that to their students. <laughs> It's funny, I'm, I'm reminded of a call I got from my, one of my mum's friends years ago. And she said, oh, Howard, I wanted to talk to you and tell you the news. She said, I'm now a hypnotherapist like you. I said, oh, that's amazing. Tell me about it. She said, well, yes, I did the course last weekend. Oh, a whole weekend? Well, a whole weekend, I know. Um, so I, I couldn't work out what they'd done with the extra day. Absolutely. Maybe they, they, they watched videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Going going back a, a second, and because I'd love to hear more about the work that you did on on wards 
uh, within the medical context uh, and find out a little bit more about what the scope of that work was and how it was, um, I guess, received not just by patients, but by, I guess, people within the medical profession who saw you in action. It it's at the start it was I'll, I'll admit it it was quite a scary start to it because I was the only hypnotherapist in the whole hospital and there I was going onto the wards with my my lovely sort of polo shirt with clinical hypnotist written on it in very big letters I'm a very big person so it fitted nicely and going around there was such a diverse range of opinions it was amazing. You come across sometimes people, whether they were cleaners, administrators, doctors, nurses, who actually knew about hypnotherapy and had positive perceptions, mm-hmm. and other medics and within the healthcare field had completely the wrong ideas, unrealistic expectations, or they thought, I mean, one person said to me, she, she said, oh, it's very woo-woo-woo-y. And I'm like, oh, don't quite get what that means, but she thought it, it was very sort of fluffy and esoteric. It didn't have any substance to it. Were it you wearing all... crystal earrings? No, you're not allowed to wear earrings on the walls. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it is interesting, and one of the things that we you know we've talked before about pre-talks. Having an elevator pitch, to use an American term, Mm. was essential. The number of times I've stayed in that lift, giving somebody a sort of 30-second preview of what hypnosis is all about, and missed the floor I'd intended to get off, it happened so regularly. I ended up having a sort of little handout that I always carried with me, with my contact details, just to support the sort of 30-second pitch that I gave them. So not meaning to put you under pressure, but you do realise I now have to ask you, if I was a doctor and we were in a lift together or even an elevator, what what would that elevator pitch be? How would you explain it to me? I always go from what they think hypnosis is. Mm -hmm. So often people will say, well, are they asleep? And I would just turn around and say, curiously, although their eyes are often closed, they don't have to be. It's a state of focused attention where actually you're more focused rather than less. And this enables you to better focus on creating change. And that's that's my very first sentence to them. Yeah. And would they ever respond? Because I've had this before where people say, well, you know, I understand hypnosis. You know, someone wants to stop smoking or they've got a fear or phobia. But what are you doing in a hospital? I mean, these people have physical things that are wrong with them. And depending on who I'm talking to, I might talk about one of my favorites who's Paracelsus. And he's he's way back in the history of hypnosis, who talked then about the mind-body connection and it's something that we're now starting to really realize that the mind and the body do work together. So not only can you work with hypnotherapy psychologically, you can work with altering the body's physiology and the, the emotions that work between the two. So there are great opportunities for change with hypnosis. Could you give us, um, and you, you obviously know that, that my real passion is, is helping people to understand that change can happen quickly and often in places where people 
from traditional backgrounds may think, crikey, that, that can't possibly be true. <laughs> but could you give us a couple of real examples of, of times and things that you've seen that would really help uh, to demonstrate this idea that you know rapid change can happen? Oh, absolutely. And I think, again, the time that I've spent working on the wards in the hospital has been an eye-opener even for me. And I had expectations that I would be effective because of the diversity of my training within my doctoral research, within my experience. But it surprised me as well. Sometimes I'd only have 20 minutes with somebody before they went to theatre. Or I'd only have an hour with them. Because if you're in hospital, you're often not well, which means you get tired more quickly. So you need to sometimes work within a window of opportunity. And there's been some amazing different examples there so working carefully to preserve anonymity and confidentiality I worked with a chap who happened to be a chef Mm -hmm. and he'd gone through chemotherapy radiotherapy and developed an absolute phobia of vegetables he couldn't bear the sight the smell the texture between his fingers everything about vegetables was repulsive because when he was having chemo he was told to eat lots of fresh veg and he associated that with being ill. Mm -hmm. And one session with him working on that and at the end of the session, he managed to my absolute respect, I've got to say, to eat his lunch. Now, his lunch was the most smelliest of fish, the lumpiest of mashed potato and hospital carrots. Now, if you've ever had hospital carrots, they somehow managed to get them squishy on the outside and hard on the inside. Uh, And he managed to eat them quite happily. He commented on how he would cook them differently, but he ate them. That that is arguably one of the most miraculous things I've heard because I've had (laughs) hospital carrots (laughs) and I never thought hypnosis was even that powerful. It it is. I mean, I had another chap um, who had had a leg lengthening surgery Mm -hmm. and he was getting a lot of breakthrough pain where it was coming up over the top of his um, morphine and fentanyl. And he was having to have his cast removed after surgery um, so they could change the cast. And he was so anxious about this because obviously the vibration was going to be excruciating. The anxiety, there was talk about sedating him to do it. And about 30 minutes of work with him and he was actually sort of saying, yeah, okay, okay, come on, let's get on with it. Wow. I've got a TV programme to watch in an hour, so as soon as you can. <laughs> and he went into it with such a positive attitude as you know if you're stressed it makes any pain seem more profound anyway his attitude really carried him through and that was with you know with hypnosis he was able to get that change so you mentioned obviously his attitude was able to get him through um do you come across people who come to see you who perhaps their attitude is not necessarily uh helpful in terms of supporting your work and and how do you if that's something that you do find how do you stay around it oh absolutely people come with all sorts of different motivations sometimes people will come to prove that hypnotherapy won't work so the the 
persistent smoker who's being pushed to stop smoking and they want to come to you so they can say, well, even hypnotherapy failed. Mm. You can get the, the sort of conscious resistance. You can also get the unconscious resistance. I had a, a client who came in and they'd been through every check possible. They'd had a back injury and the back injury had been healed. It had surgery and so forth and nothing was shifting this pain. And actually, there was subconscious resistance to change because they were worried that their family circumstances would change and they'd have to go back to work. Yeah. So there could either be conscious or subconscious change. And other times people come in and they don't know what they want. They know what they don't want, but they don't know what they want. And that can be a challenge as well. It's it's varied. (laughs) So I, I noticed just now, I mean, uh, at one point you talked about unconscious and you've also talked about subconscious. Would you make a distinction between the two uh, and what would the distinction be? No, I, t- I tend to use them interchangeably. There are so many different perspectives of subconscious, unconscious, pre-conscious and all sorts of other yeah. terminology. Non-conscious, out of conscious. Oh. <laughs> out of awareness it's yeah In, interconscious it's it's <laughs> it's an ever evolving field and for me it's it's more of a concept than an anatomical construct yeah so i think it's it's a way of discussing various functions of the brain and the mind and how we function as individuals and it tends to be a good way, especially when you're talking to clients, of helping them understand how they work. So you never saw anyone when you when you were in the hospitals having an unconscious ectomy? Uh, no. Okay. No, afraid not. It might have been quite interesting. That would be, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I know on the rapid fire round, you talked when I asked you, can you think of a concept or an idea that you used to believe was true, but you subsequently changed your mind about? You talked about that you might need that one would need a positive uh, regard for the client to affect change and i'm wondering whether you can elaborate more around that yeah i think it you know it comes a lot from humanistic perspectives and rogers rogerian therapy where you you have this unconditional positive regard and i think sometimes you can have a neutral regard for somebody you, you may not have a view either way. You don't have to view them positively. And sometimes you may not like somebody mm. for whatever reason. And that doesn't necessarily stop you working with them. If, if it interferes with how you work with them, if you're aware of that, then that's one thing. But if there just isn't that amazing, awesome connection, it doesn't mean to say that you can't do effective work. That's then down to your skill and your intention as a practitioner. And I do find that intention is very, very important. So, in you're, so you're suggesting that we, you might not like someone, but you could still have a positive intention to be able to help them? Absolutely. Yes. And where does uh, rapport for you fit into this? Would you define rapport as the connection one would have with the client? I think that that's a really good definition of rapport or a way of thinking about rapport. 
And a lot is, is talked about, about the need for rapport. And we do know, research shows that rapport tends to make a client more susceptible to hypnosis. Hmm. So it can very much be useful. However, sometimes you may only have a brief moment or two to generate rapport. Other times you may work at it for one or two sessions and still not really get there. And whilst it is a factor, I don't think it is the sole defining factor for effective therapy. Which, I mean, I, I certainly would agree with that. Um, but I'm also wondering, you know, if there if there is ever a, a sole defining factor. Or are there, are there things that you would define as more important than, than that rapport, that connection? I think there are things that are perhaps as equally as important. Things like listening to what the client actually wants rather than deciding as a therapist what the client needs. Mm -hmm. And if the two are different, if you have a view and the client has a view, then discussing it rather than imposing your way on them is, is important. So focusing on what the client wants and actually being focused towards their goals and their outcomes is is really important as well and i've certainly met on courses particularly quite a few novice therapists who focus on what the client doesn't want so they don't want to be anxious rather than finding out what they do want which might be that they're calm or confident or more secure and that can make a real difference in therapy being really focused on what the client actually wants the issue of of setting outcomes and having a, a you know a positive goal is that i mean do you they talk about you know having a smart outcome i mean would you formalize it in that kind of way not necessarily because not all outcomes can be can fit well into a smart model hmm. so there are different ways of defining outcomes but i do feel that it needs to be something that's measurable a lot of times people will say clients will say oh well i went to see so and so and hypnotherapy wasn't effective and you might say well what wasn't effective about it and they tend to not recognize change for example if you do some work with somebody on pain management if you don't have a clear record of where they started from by the time they get to have great control of their pain they're not going to remember how bad it was to start with. Yeah. So they won't know the difference. So if somebody is has performance anxiety and they won't stand up in front of a group of five or six people, if you don't know where you came from, you don't know that you've you've moved forward. Yeah. I I've, this has come up a number of times on the podcast, and I think it's I, I'd love to find out your take on this as well. And we're kind of hinting around it here, which is uh, when change happens, part of me would love for people to just go, wow, this is amazing. I'm totally changed and recognize it. <laughs> but often I find that they don't because it's, it happens so easily that they kind of forget where they were beforehand. Absolutely. People do forget. And we don't want to. I'm sure you would agree. We don't want to give them back their problem. However, it can be really useful for a client to know how well they have succeeded mm. in creating change. 
and scaling and use of measurement and and having some indication of where they came from and how they've, they've progressed can be really useful. Some of that also, I think, is down to locus of control and whether they're more external and think that therapy is done to them or they're more internal and think that they've been a collaborative part of the change. So how do you go about um, creating measurable uh, outcomes uh, for you and, and how do you work with people in terms of following up and checking on results? I tend to ask them how they will measure it. Mm-hmm. And that gives gives me the best idea. Some people will obviously come out with, oh, well, I, I'll use a SMART principle because it's, it's commonly talk, taught in many workplaces. So people understand SMART goals and key performance indicators and other sort of more workplace occupational terminology. Mm-hmm. If you're working with somebody who's perhaps more artistic they may have a different way of measuring it it might be in terms of feelings or intensity of feelings so i will ask them you know how they would like to measure it and that tends to work better for me i find and and do you work in kind of blocks of sessions or do you do one session and then see how they are or like what's your framework for how you approach change (laughs) oh it's so varied um it would be lovely to have the luxury of blocks of sessions but quite often i will see people once Mm -hmm. whether it's in the hospital or whether it's in the therapy environment in the therapy environment i may see somebody commonly two or three times yeah the the way that i work is perhaps a little bit different from other people who think in terms of a six session plan or something a little bit longer and part of that is because of the types of clients that I tend to work with and how I work so I tend not to work with somebody for example with profound depression where you're working very gently and you might see them every week for six to twelve weeks or even longer I tend to work more dynamically and as I say I do give them more homework I give them tasks and activities and some hypnotherapists will disagree with me I know quite a few colleagues who won't teach their clients self-hypnosis because it means that the client will change quicker I'm the other way I would rather empower my clients and teach them techniques appropriately but teach them techniques so they have them for ongoing life skills so that they can identify and make their own changes do you not think there's an, an issue of integrity or ethics about that as well which is the idea that as someone whose profession is to help people that we would withhold information that might help them is um, clearly not something that's uh, really appropriate or moral I think that then balances against a realistic perspective that therapists invest a lot of money in their training and their premises and their advertising to get a client and it takes a lot of work sometimes to get a client through the door and perhaps there is a subconscious driver for some that they want to see a client more than once Mm. also sometimes you might look at a client and think you're not really a very good subject from a hypnotherapy perspective and if I teach you self-hypnosis now 
you're not going to get as good an experience and that might put you off coming back for further therapy. So there may be a sort of susceptibility or hypnotizability element into it. Sure. And other people just want the money from seeing clients. Yeah. So there are all different drivers and factors, yeah. I think. So yeah, I think I think on reflection, it, it's it's slightly uh, blasé to say, well, it's 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 always uh, an ethical or moral uh, outcry um, <laughs> if they if they don't do that. Uh, and there might be a plethora of reasons, as you point out, that that you know uh, could explain uh, some legitimate reasons why they might not do that, which is fair enough. Um, with the with the work that you do. I'd love to know whether you feel when you're working with people, whether you are consciously responding to people using the skills that you have, or whether you're kind of just because you've done it for a while and you've had you know, robust training and experience, you're trusting your unconscious, which is kind of leading. That's That's a really good question. I think for me it's both. I'm deliberately and consciously planning therapy and have an idea of where I'm going and focusing my intention. But I also listen to and trust my intuition. Mm -hmm. Because for me, my intuition has come from my knowledge, my experience. It's I'm allowing myself to subconsciously, to use the word we've just been talking about, to, to subconsciously read their body language, to monitor the, the micro-expressions and things like that, and the, the sub-language, what the words that are beneath what they're saying. And I'm allowing really my subconscious mind to pick up on all of that while I'm doing the more conscious work. So for me, I think it's a blend. So, and it's interesting you use the word blend because there's a few things that I would love to ask you about so for instance on the one hand you know one can find yourself saying things like you know we just let the sounds wash over us you know as, as you experience hypnosis let the sounds wash over you and so on and on the other hand we kind of also want them to follow along and follow instruction so i wonder which they're supposed to be doing because <laughs> on the one hand you know they're, they're kind of ambiguous yeah. instructions you know i want you to just lie back and let the sounds wash over you as you consciously follow my instructions I think it depends on how you're working. Yeah. Sometimes you're going to want them to, to drift off and you're going to, to work more from an indirect perspective. So maybe you're, you're getting them engaged in a wonderful metaphor and using the metaphor to carry the message. So you're going to want to let them be a little bit more subconscious, a little bit more left brain and, and really pick up the feel of your work. And other times, you're going to want them to communicate with you in whatever way and to actively engage. Yeah. So sometimes having sounds wash over them will be absolutely fine as they just follow along with a story or a deep relaxation or something like that. And other times when you're, you're questioning them, you're perhaps doing some, some parts work maybe, mm. then you're going to want them to communicate and be, be more engaged. And neither are wrong, and it's just about using the methods that are appropriate. I think one of the the other points really is about getting the technique and the appropriate the approach appropriate for your technique and for the person. I know that if I'm allowed to to just drift really deep, I'll use that as a way of avoiding working in therapy. 
Yeah. And people that are experienced at work with me will spot that and make me work. However, if you if you don't know that, then you might just think that, oh, deeper is better. And it isn't always better. You don't always need somebody in really deep trance to do effective work. So generally when I'm working with clients, I tend to work, I mentioned working more dynamically. So I tend there tends to be some aspect of communication going on. So would you agree, therefore, that uh, for you, hypnosis is not relaxation? (laughs) Um, For me, I'm still of the view, and I had this come up very early on in my training, I'm still of the view that relaxation is suggested it's not automatic. Yeah. And I've got so many friends who are fantastic stage hypnotists, and if their if their volunteers were were relaxed, they wouldn't be anywhere near as entertaining. So I think we tend with hypnotherapy and with clinical hypnosis, we tend to go the relaxation route because of the effect of the autonomic nervous system and the way that the brain becomes more accessible and the mind becomes more accessible. So relaxation is often helpful, but then when you're doing work with an elite athlete you may not want them to be deeply relaxed. Mm. So I think it's one of those things that you use appropriately. Which again, in all my conversations so far on the podcast, there, there is a real thrust from, from people like yourself as to working flexibly with people. I was, I was, talk, I was teaching um, a group of psychology students. I teach psychology as well recently. And I mentioned that I met this guy at a hypnosis conference a few years ago who said that he had a six-session protocol Mm -hmm. and that at minute 22 on session four, he knew exactly where he would be in his protocol. And that horrified me. Because where is his client in that? Are they still at minute 11 on session one? Are they still on session three? They aren't necessarily on session four, minute 22. So for me, it's about content over process rather than the other way around. So some of the traditional ideas about therapy that I believe are still perpetuated out within the social consciousness are things like that, you know, one needs to understand and come to terms with deep traumatic past to be able to move forwards or that it's about deep analysis uh, or self-reflection. Is these things that you would uh, agree with that are out there? And do you agree that they are necessary? I I think that people tend to lump or collect talking therapies together and that they don't really understand the different models and how they contribute to therapy. So psychodynamic is is a little bit more unconscious, is thought, is, is a bit more experiential for some. And sometimes people want insight and they need it to move forward. And other times they don't care. So I don't think necessarily that you automatically have to go back and and thoroughly unpick a past trauma, risking re-traumatization, of course. Mm-hmm. And... It isn't, it isn't written in stone that you have to explore the past to be able to move forward. Taking a purely sort of habit change perspective, 
many, many clients get really lasting beneficial change by working in the present and projecting that forward. And for me, behavioral here and now approaches are often my first approach. And then moving on to something more cognitive with limiting beliefs mm. and working up the level of intrusiveness. So I'll be behavioral because it's here and now. I'll work with cognitive because it's on limiting belief and unhelpful thoughts. Then I might go to analytical if there's a need for insight, bearing in mind that just understanding is knowing. It doesn't necessarily translate to doing. Mm-hmm. And then if necessary, going on to regression, although regression approaches are amazing for resource building. So I will often use regression for resource building within my therapy work. Because certainly, you know, if you read certainly the initial, you know, Dave Ellman hypnotherapy, there is an implication that every problem has some kind of trigger event. And that in in simply in understanding what that event was, it just poof, like magic disappears. I can understand where that viewpoint came from. However, even then, and certainly even now, we don't understand fully how the memory works in yep. the brain. And there are, there is no concrete explanation for how our memory works. We do know, for example, that every time you access a memory, you change it. So I don't feel that a trigger event is a pure recording of what that that what happened so it sort of partly breaks down that argument i find i yeah no 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 i i i think i i think i'm totally in alignment with you uh, on that uh, as well as it happens um and certainly i would believe i mean the way i talk about it is that i think the brain is very good at creating metaphor or symbolism or things mm-hmm. that it needs to create to then you know facilitate a change to that um, especially if you're working with someone in a suggestible state like hypnosis and you say, well, hey, guess what? There must be a cause. Let's go back. And your brain goes, OK, I'll do that. <laughs> Absolutely. And the brain's also very, very good. The brain hates hates vacuums and voids. So if there's a void there, it will work to fill it. Yeah. I think anyone that doesn't believe the brain likes vacuums, try not talking to yourself. <laughs> I, I, I get to like two seconds in and then I say to myself, Howard, you're doing really well. <laughs> I love that. Um, okay. So what, what would you suggest um, is your sort of go-to advice for people if they want to get good at this kind of stuff at change work? I would suggest getting really good training and investing in appropriate hypnosis recordings and resources. So, For some people, they work better studying from books. Other people work better listening to recordings. Other people do do better with YouTube. All of that supports good, to use a a school phrase, classroom training. So whether you start with a taster weekend just to see whether it's something that you like or whether you leap straight into a practitioner course or you go on a 10-week course at your local adult education college on on creating personal change. However you do it, I think face-to-face tuition 
is essential to get a good grounding, a good start. And it really helps keep you on track. In a way, hypnotherapy is both an art and a science. And if you develop unhelpful habits at the start, it can be a lot harder to change those than it can be to to start from scratch. So getting good training will really set you off on the right path. So obviously, I know HypnoTC, that you, you do provide, you know, really good quality hypnotherapy training. Um, and obviously, we will put the links on the Rapid Change Works website uh, as well. You mentioned that some people might like books. And I know when we spoke previously about you doing the podcast, and I think you knew this question was going to come up, <laughs> especially when you mentioned you have a, an avid reader with thousands of books. Um, and you, you told me that you didn't like it when people said to you, can you recommend any great books? Um, and therefore, I'm going to say to you, could you recommend any great books? Uh, maybe, maybe you know, two or three standout ones that that would fill the need of um, someone who's starting out and wanting to find out a little more. It really does depend on what what you want and how you learn. So, if you're more interested in rapid techniques and mm. rapid inductions, which are an interesting way to start then I like Rory's book. Yep. And that's not because we work together, it's just because it's really accessible. If you want, if you're more of an academic mind and you like something more textbook-like, then Yapko's Trance Work, I find, is a really good book. And you can sit there and you can study it and study it and study it and you can spend a year reading that. And you'll get a lot of really useful information out of it. So Yapko's book is totally one, I think, that if you want to become a hypnotherapist, that's one to have as sort of mm -hmm. your go-to. But there are other sort of more diverse books. There's a, a lovely book. I think it's um, I'm not too sure the, the author's name, but there's one about things I wish I'd known um I think it was Dabney Ewan 101 things I wish I'd known when I started using hypnosis it makes amazing reading and it's such simple things that as a hypnotherapist you look back on and think oh yes of course but as somebody starting out that can be a really really good book to yeah. to just get a flavor and if you're into history something like hidden depths and the the story of hypnosis is is good. If you like to know where things come from, then that's a really good start. And I guess a couple of my favourites might be My Voice Will Go With You. Yeah, Sydney Rosen. Uh, Sydney Rosen. And I was told when I first learned hypnotherapy, I was told, read this, put it in the cupboard and bring it out three years later and read it again. Yeah. And I've done that several times now, and every single time they were right, I get more out of it. And is that with My Voice Will Go With You? Yeah, My yeah. Voice Will Go With You. Um, Uncommon Therapy is another really, really good one to read again and again. That's Jay, um, Jay Haley, isn't it? Yeah, Jay Haley, really like that one. So there are a few. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a lot of really good script books out there and other things which will give you an idea of how to how to formulate your own work, 
how to get your brain thinking in terms of a session. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want something that's really, really quite old now, although I think it's had quite a few cover redesigns, Eric Burns' Games People Play can give you a fascinating insight into how people think. Games, so that, games People Play. Yeah, it's a fascinating. I think it came out in the 60s. I could be wrong, but it's really, really an old book. Hmm. And something else that I found very helpful, although sort of more fringe, Robert Phipps, who's an amazing, amazing body language expert, he's written a book on body language. And that's really, really helpful because it, it starts to introduce you to the world of nonverbal communication and getting an idea of how much people leak in terms of communication. Ooh, it's interesting. Mm. I'm, I'm going to have to stop you there with the books because you're costing me a fortune here. There's always second-hand on Amazon. Absolutely, absolutely. No, no, we will. In all, all joking aside, we will put all of the book recommendations as well on your Rapid Change Works page. Um, tell me, if people want to get in touch with you and they like what they hear and they want to you know, find out more, how can they do that? Where can they go? They, the easiest way is either via my teaching site, which is hypnotc.com, Mm-hmm. Or email is quite simply kate at hypnotc.com or via my therapy site, which is affinityhypnosis.com and then kate at affinityhypnosis.com. On our HypnoTC site, we've actually got a recommended reading list, all of which the, the books are out of my bookcase. We, we, we can also send links to that as well. Kate, tell me, when you knew we were going to be talking about rapid change and we talked about you coming onto the podcast, is there anything that you thought would be nice to share, nice to bring up, but I haven't asked directly? I think for me, it's, it's really about that change can happen very quickly, but it, people, clients will only ever change at the speed at which they can change. Yeah. And good training... And really engaging with your training, not just attending, but putting in the work, getting the practice, that can make a huge difference in how you enable people to change. And really, that's another part of it, I think, for me, is that it's their change. It's not yours. So often you won't get the credit for it. And perhaps that's a good thing because then they're empowered and know that they have made the change for themselves, really. So I think training will enable you to plan, to practice, to reflect and discuss in your supervision and then go on an ongoing develop. But it's really about focusing on the client. Absolutely. Um, and certainly a sentiment that I, that I share. Listen, Kate, it's been so good chatting and hearing more about the way in which you work and some of your experiences. And uh, I, I know, certainly I do, but I hope all the listeners also appreciate uh, your time with us today. So thank you so much. You are most welcome. And it clearly shows how profound time distortion is because that time has flown by. Marvellous. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. <laughs>